Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello? What is the what do you want what me to say? Going on here? Like, oh, it's why? just um Chameleon. Okay. You're listening to Chameleon. A production of Campside Media. Oh. <laughs> A quick warning. This episode contains some sexually explicit conversations that aren't appropriate for younger audiences. I'm going to get to Michelle and Dennis in this episode. And you're gonna find out who they really are. But first, I'm going to take you back in time to tell you a story from 2007 in Memphis, Tennessee. It's about a city councilman. His name is Ricky Pete. Ricky had been convicted of trying to take a $1,000 bribe. He spent two and a half years in prison and then, you guessed it, got reelected to the Memphis City Council. In this country, we're full of weird political redemption stories, right? Remember former Washington, D.C. Mayor Marion Barry? He got caught smoking crack during an FBI sting, served six months in prison for drug charges, got out, and became mayor of the nation's capital, again. Anyway, in Memphis, the FBI suspected Ricky Pete was up to his old ways, and they wanted to find out for sure. How did they do that? Well, they had to find someone who could credibly be in some sort of shady business with Ricky and wire that guy up with a recording device so they could catch Ricky. They found their guy in a Memphis lobbyist named Joe Cooper. Joe also worked as a used car salesman. Joe had an arrangement with a local drug dealer to launder money. The drug dealer would buy cars from Joe with cash and then resell them. So the FBI quietly arrested Joe Cooper. They turned him into an informant. the FBI gave Joe money to approach Ricky with a story that he wanted to put up some controversial billboards in the city. Ricky said okay. He'd give support. But he wanted money. So this was good old-fashioned, cash-under-the-table corruption in a southern town. With a fun twist. The way that Joe and Ricky did their money deals? Joe would go into a bathroom, leave a pile of cash on the toilet, and then Ricky would go in behind him after he left, and collect the money. Yeah, that's the way they did it. But after Ricky collected the second round of cash, FBI agents arrested him and charged him with taking bribes. Since it was Ricky Pete's second public corruption rap, the local media gave the politician a cute nickname. Ricky Repeat. This is a classic informant tactic for the FBI, use a small fish to catch a big fish. In this story, the small fish is Joe Cooper, the informant, and the big fish is Ricky Pete. The informant in this case, Joe, cooperates because he knows he'll get leniency in his criminal case if he helps the FBI catch the bigger fish. At least, that's how it's supposed to work. I'm Trevor Aronson. From Campside Media... 
This is episode three of High Rollers, season two of Chameleon. Remember what Emile's brother Gus said about Michelle? The little guy who comes up to you with the hundred little Swiss watches in his pocket and says, hey, what do you want to buy? You want to buy this one? You want to buy that one? Hey, you look like the kind of guy that buys this. Hey, try this. You know, this looks good on you. Try it. I give you best deal. That's, that's the kind of guy that I felt this, this was Michelle. That really is a good description of Michelle on those surreptitious recordings. We want you to be safe, so if you need anything, you let us know. But what I found out about Michelle and what he'd been up to before all those recordings were made only raised more questions about who this guy was and what his true motivations were. Recently, I tried to find Michelle to talk to him. I drove all around Southern California. I had a list of possible addresses associated with Michelle and a woman named Vicky, who I believe is Michelle's wife. There were more than a dozen addresses linked to these two people, which isn't normal by any means. But if you're trying not to be found, this is exactly what you do. Move, and move often, and register your cell phone, credit cards, and other bills using temporary addresses. When I drove around, I found that some of Michelle's addresses were just mailboxes at UPS stores. There was one office that traced back to Michelle's wife in a rundown building in a seedy part of Orange County. The office seemed to have been abandoned in a hurry. There was a mess of beat-up furniture and loose items inside, and a slot in the front window to leave mail. I dropped in my business card with a note, just in case Michelle or Vicky Benamar might find it. And I went to lots of apartments throughout the Los Angeles area. Hello? Here I was, at one of those apartments, in Hermosa Beach, just south of the Los Angeles airport. It was a well-kept white house divided into two apartments near the beach, a nice place to live. The front door was open to one of the apartments, so I walked up. Hi, I'm sorry to bother you. Um, my name is Trevor Aronson. I'm a journalist, uh-huh. and I'm looking for someone named Vicky Benamar or Michelle Benamar. They do not live here. I'm oh, okay. so sorry. No problem. Do you know how yeah. long ago they moved? Oh my gosh, we have no idea. This happened at every apartment I went to. I never found Michelle or anyone who knew him. I'd imagine this was by design. Michelle doesn't want to be found. But here's what I know about Michelle. He's got a checkered past. In Alabama, a judge decided Michelle should pay nearly $3 million for failing to pay back loans related to a vending machine business in Egypt. Michelle allegedly ran off with the money which was supposed to be the capital needed to start the new business. Then, in 2012, Michelle started writing bad checks at Las Vegas casinos. And the heat got so high from all that missing money that Michelle tried to flee the country. He walked into the Salt Lake City airport, checked in for a flight to Paris, and passed through security. As Michelle sat down outside his gate, a U.S. customs official called the Salt Lake City police informing them that Michelle had a warrant for his arrest in Las Vegas. Michelle was sitting right there, his Paris-bound plane waiting, as police officers approached him. 
They asked for his passport, confirmed his identity, then arrested him on the spot. And they shipped him back to Las Vegas. And then, well, back in Las Vegas, Michelle walks into the FBI's office. It's a sand-colored building surrounded by a white fence. I drove by during one of my days in Las Vegas. Above the building's entrance, I saw the words of the FBI's motto, fidelity, bravery, integrity. When Michelle walks into this building, he sits down with an agent named Chuck Rowe. Michelle says he has information he wants to give the FBI. He says that he knows a local businessman named Emil Buari, and Emil's dirty. He's willing to launder money for investors. Michelle also tells the FBI that Emil embezzled $1 million from a business partner. So maybe at this point, Chuck goes to his computer and he looks up this Emil guy and he finds all this stuff, the false information in Emil's file that we discussed before, the wild, unverified claims that he'd killed 17 people and been involved in child porn and credit card fraud. Emil, from that false 9-11 information, sounds like a bad guy. And here's Michelle, this guy off the streets in Las Vegas, telling Chuck that this Emil guy is willing to launder money. And so Chuck decides to open an FBI investigation on Emil Buari. And he signs up Michelle as an informant, or CHS, Confidential Human Source, in FBI lingo. That's, well, how the FBI does business. Sign up informants. The FBI has more than 15,000 registered informants today. In fact, the FBI has more informants than FBI agents. Informants work for the FBI for a variety of reasons. For leniency on criminal charges, for assistance with immigration problems, to make money, and they can make up to $100,000 for a single case. Some even do it for God and country. Though the God and country ones, they're an extreme minority. Informants are the true backbone of the FBI. Informants know the lingo, the bad guys. They know how to be criminals. There's a saying about informants that FBI agents pass around. To catch the devil, you have to go to hell. So Michelle becomes one of the FBI's more than 15,000 informants. And Chuck, the FBI agent, is now, essentially, his master. CHS will meet with Emily Borari, Las Vegas, Nevada. Got anything in there? What you're hearing is Chuck hiding a recording device on Michelle. Then Michelle drives across town to Emil's weight loss clinic. You can hear the road noise on the device. Chuck calls Michelle as he pulls into the parking lot of Emil's weight loss clinic. Hey, buddy. I'm, I'm going now. Michelle tells Chuck that he's going into Emil's clinic. He then walks across the parking lot and in to see Emil. Michelle! My brother, how are you? How are you doing? More after the break. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. 
I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast, where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. So Michelle, the FBI's informant, is suddenly at Emile's diet clinic. A lot. The other guy who's stopping by regularly is Dennis. And Dennis seems really friendly. He and Michelle are casual with Emile, as if they're old buddies. And they're nice to Emile's friends, like Mary Green. Remember her? She's the one who gets arrested on the toilet. But way before she gets arrested, she's at Emile's clinic one day talking to Michelle. Now, I just want to draw Mary Green a little for you. She's about five foot four, just over 100 pounds. She's in her early 50s now, but she looks a lot younger. One day, when I met her, this was during the pandemic, she wore a dress with a pink flamingo pattern, complete with a matching pink flamingo face mask. Mary told me how Emile had invited her to come over to meet Michelle. He said, I want you to come meet this guy. He's great. He's, you know, involved with a lot of people and higher up, but <laughs> dress professional, you know? And I'm like, oh, of course. And because um, we're friends, you know, like be a little crazy sometimes. But that we introduced me just like that, like nothing, just what I did in the past, and that was it. Here's what happened at Emile's office. Michelle, this is Mary. Hi, Mary. Michelle. Michelle, nice to meet you. Emile and Mary had been estranged for a bit due to a business disagreement. Mary is under the impression that Emile is introducing her to Michelle for a business opportunity. It's his way, in her mind, of making things right between them. <laughs> no, I live in LA. Oh, you live here? Yeah. How you like the heat? I'm going to Florida Monday just to get me in the water. Oh, I see. Good. So, Mary, tell me, what kind of business you are into? Uh, skincare. I do skincare, body contouring, uh, skin tightening, uh, microneedling. Oh, I see. Skincare. I've known Mary for 10 or 11 years. Oh, wow. What time? Yeah. She was good friends with my ex-wife, actually. Oh, yeah? Oh, okay. The three of them make small talk for a while, and then Michelle starts selling Mary on the money laundering scheme. I was talking to Emil and he, you know, he, 
he mentioned you and he said, I don't know if you told I'm her. I'm saying this, you know, things she can earn 4% doing this, how the okay. cash comes, how she, you know, she writes checks out. Um, did, did, did you tell her where the money comes from, uh, uh, what we do? Uh, a little bit of it. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not much. <laughs> not much. I, I can tell the leader. Uh, we kill people and stuff. Uh, <laughs> that all happens at Emile's clinic. All that conversation you just heard. But later, Mary goes to a bar on the Las Vegas Strip and meets Dennis out for drinks. And he said, you know what, uh, a massage here for an hour massage is $40, $50 compared to if you go to a, an American wow. massage, which is 100 yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I can easily market that, right. you know? And then, then, when I, then after, obviously, you get more involved, and it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a full service. Of you know, it's, a, of course, a we full service. We love you a long time. We love you a long time. <laughs> what do you want? Uh, and it was actually, and they're, they're really sweet about it. And the best part is, none of the customers I refer ever complain that the oh, massage right. sucks. In this meeting, Dennis explains to Mary that he used to be an engineer, hated his job. And then he met some guys who asked him to run massage parlors in Los Angeles. I have, I have two consenting adults. It's in a safe environment. They provide condoms, they provide protection. Dennis isn't being gratuitous in describing this. He wants the people laundering money for him to know that the money comes from an illegal business. It's not. It's the oldest profession in the I guess the world. I just want to tell you because I would never get involved with young girls. Right, right, right. Dennis tells Mary that he owns 12 yeah. massage parlors in Los Angeles. It's all cash business. Of course. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I don't have I don't have clients charging you know nope. to their uh, you know to their visa. Right? So, yeah, and I can't just walk in with a bundle of cash in the bank. And so, uh, just as quickly as Dennis introduces money laundering, he changes the subject, talking about how he's divorced with two kids, how he likes to try different things in life. But he tells her that of the things he'd try, sex with another man isn't one of them. Well, you don't have to go all the way, but I, I mean, would try. I would try two women at a time. Oh, please. <laughs> That's, that's kind of stretching it, you know? <laughs> and then free-spirited Mary volunteers a story about her sexual past. Well, I tried two guys at once. Richard, have you? Yeah, I have. Dennis could have stopped the conversation. At this point, it is gratuitous. There's no reason he needs to hear about Mary's threesome. But then Dennis asks... Did you like it? It was alright. It was okay. Of course, one got jealous, but... He I was think that's boyfriend. what happened. Well, oh, of course he did. Yeah, he's like, why are you doing that to him? And I'm like, motherfucker, this was your, you, he yeah. brought it to my attention. I'm like, I would, I've never in my life yeah. thought of that. And he just like kept bringing it, bringing it. I'm like, you know what, fuck it, I'll do it. Dennis tells Mary that he thinks a threesome can only work if the three people don't really know each other. But not like you bring a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or, or stuff like that, because the jealousy will come in. Just like, Completely. I don't understand like some of those uh, married couples that be swinging. Dennis and Mary then offer some exclamations about how they think threesomes can't work. No way, Dennis says. That ruins people, Mary says. It's really going nowhere. But Dennis keeps the conversation going. I can't imagine watching a man, you know, right? And I, there's no way no any girl is going to sit on my guy. Yeah. That's just not going to happen. I don't think how that, I don't. Play around, doing something else, yeah. but sing on? Yeah. No. I hear you. <laughs> there's, la- there's lines. Dennis changes the subject again, to his business and the cash he needs someone to help him unload. Oh yeah, let's talk about business again. What happened? We started getting a tragedy here. How did so, we get on this? I don't know. Anyway, so um, 
Michelle started telling me about this guy he knew out here. Neil's always a really good guy. And the one thing with my business is, is uh, you don't want to you don't want to stay with one company for a long time. Right. You know. So uh, like I, and even Emil knows that. I told him, hey, after after I do about four five hundred thousand with you. It's not that I don't like you, it's not that you did anything, it's not that I don't trust you. I it's change that, it. And, I, and when I told him, I think it, it, it protects you too. Absolutely. Because, uh, yeah, I was wondering that. So I was wondering how that would work okay. because uh, I'm all about that. Yeah. Because uh, I've always had accountant. My first year we did really good, like yeah. 120. And then this year's a little bit slower. Mary tells Dennis that since her business is a little slower this year, the extra income she'd receive from taking in his cash wouldn't be suspicious to her accountant. They talk about exactly what would happen if he gave her twenty-five thousand bucks. Would you like three different checks for that? Uh, uh, minimum at least two. It depends okay. on your company. Are you good with that? Can you handle that? Uh, can you handle handle eventually maybe up to a month? A week? No, no, no. A month? Um, maybe a month. A month should be fine. But Dennis realizes that Mary has a big problem. She doesn't have enough cash in the bank to cover the check she'd write to him. She'd need to deposit right away the cash that Dennis gives her. The key to laundering money is to work with someone who already has a lot of money in the bank. Okay, here's a little lesson. The reason for this is because any deposit into a bank account of more than $10,000 triggers what's called a currency transaction report to be sent to the U.S. government. The IRS, FBI and other government agencies use these reports to identify money laundering, tax fraud, and other financial crimes. If you're laundering money, and look, I'm only telling you this for educational purposes, the person receiving the cash should deposit it into a bank slowly over time, in increments of less than $10,000, so as to avoid triggering government notices. This is itself a federal crime, called structuring, but it's a hard one for government agents to detect. The point is, the person receiving the cash needs to have enough money in the bank to float the laundered money so that the checks written can be cashed immediately while the cash provided can be deposited in small increments over time. Let's say, let's say, let's say I, I tell you in advance, Mary, I'm coming back next Monday, uh, again to 25. What, can you make sure there's 25 in your in your account? In it for the same day? Yeah. The same day. I need I need at least two days. Okay. Two days. What Mary is saying here is that she'd deposit that $25,000 right away. She just needs the two days to deposit the money. This would be a red flag for the most amateurish money launderer. Someone walking into a bank with $25,000 cash to deposit out of nowhere. Shit, man, that's how you get caught. But that doesn't bother Dennis. Instead, he suggests going up to the bar for another drink. Either way. You want to take a shot? Why not? <laughs> so the thing to understand here is that Mary, when she was on the toilet in the first episode and said she had no idea why the FBI was coming after her, well, she really might have had no idea because Mary would meet with Dennis only one more time after this. And then about 18 months would pass by, and suddenly the FBI is in her bathroom. 
As for Dennis, he's not who he says he is. More after the break. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. Before the break, I said Dennis wasn't who he said he was. He isn't a business associate of Michelle's. He doesn't run any massage parlors. In fact, he's not a businessman at all. He's an FBI agent. His real name is Dennis Lau. And he's been Chuck's partner for a long, long time. He and Chuck are good friends. And all this time, while he was whining and dining Emil and Mary, Dennis has just been trying to set them up. They're all in on it. Michelle, Chuck and Dennis. And they are getting together the beginning stages of a really good sting. In fact, they give it a name. They call it Operation Botox. That name sounds ridiculous, right? Operation Botox. But it's pretty on brand for the FBI, which, as an institution, has a ham-fisted sense of humor. Back in the 80s, the FBI investigated corrupt judges in Chicago as part of what agents called Operation Greylord, a reference to the gray wigs that British magistrates used to wear. So agents often use puns, antiquated sayings, even song lyrics for undercover operation names. More recently, and perhaps now most famously, the FBI investigated Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign for suggested connections to Russian intelligence agents. The FBI called that Operation Crossfire Hurricane, from the opening lyrics of a Rolling Stones song because, well, the lead agent on the case was a Stones fan. So back in Las Vegas, FBI agents come up with the name Operation Botox, a reference to the toxin injected under people's skin to reduce wrinkles. Operation Botox, the FBI agents claim in their file, is designed to investigate, and I'm quoting here, a Middle Eastern criminal enterprise. The main target of Operation Botox is Emil Buari, the owner of a weight loss clinic. And what's happening to Emil isn't really new. The FBI has been running undercover stings for decades. FBI agents or informants pretend to be criminals. They get in on the illegal action, and then... Go, go, go! Arrests, press conferences front page headlines. 
Okay, let's talk about a movie for a few minutes, because it has a lot to do with how the FBI operates stings these days. Remember American Hustle? You've probably seen the movie, or at least heard of it. It stars Christian Bale, Bradley Cooper, Amy Adams, Jennifer Lawrence, an all-star cast. It's set in the late 70s, early 80s. Christian Bale and Amy Adams play con artists who've been busted and flipped by the FBI, so they're now working as informants. Bradley Cooper? He's the FBI agent who is handling them, like Dennis and Chuck. So in one scene, Christian Bale and Amy Adams tell Bradley Cooper that they want to introduce into the sting a man dressed up like a wealthy Saudi or Emirati. An Arab sheik. What do we want an Arab sheik for? Okay. To set this up, to bust the con artist, we need to make the honeypot to attract the bees. The real name of this sting, the one used by agents inside the FBI, Abscam, as in Arab scam. To attract the bees, we need to offer them wealthy individual who they can take advantage of, someone special, someone new, someone amazing. And those guys are going to want to sell fake bank CDs to that guy, take the sheik's money. So to be clear, in real life and in the movie, the FBI used a fake Arab sheik as a ruse to investigate stolen paintings and fake securities. He ultimately led the FBI to corrupt politicians who were willing to take bribes in return for political favors that benefited the sheikh's company, called, and I'm not joking here, Abdul Enterprises. Oh, that's good. Abscam ended in the arrest and conviction of multiple elected officials, including six U.S. congressmen and one U.S. senator. Abscam's success and the resulting publicity shaped how the FBI conducted undercover sting operations for decades after. It was a rather routine FBI undercover investigation of a stolen property fencing ring. But what was routine for the FBI soon became extraordinary. The FBI says it found an organized crime informant who told the FBI about dealings with dozens of politicians in a number of states and in Washington, D.C. It sounded good, but the FBI got in some trouble over Abscam. Members of Congress alleged that the FBI's tactics amounted to entrapment. There were hearings the ACLU called for restrictions on the FBI's undercover operations. But even though there were a lot of slings and arrows, the FBI survived the scandal. And Abscan became a model for how the Bureau does undercover work. It's no secret that within the FBI, every agent wants their own Abscan, the type of sting that government officials and journalists will talk about for years. Maybe Hollywood will even come along and make a movie about it. And in Las Vegas... In the city's health and beauty industry, FBI agents thought they had their own little lab scan. And who knows? Maybe Chuck, Dennis, and others at the FBI thought there's a movie in Operation Botox, too. I actually do think there's a movie to be made. Just not one those guys would want to see. This is High Rollers. In the next episode, you're going to learn more about the FBI agents, Chuck and Dennis. I remember walking into a bar that was just down the street from both the court and the public defender's office and seeing Chuck Rowe and Dennis Lau sitting at the bar. And immediately, you know, I'm looking the other way because these guys are scary. And about Chuck's obsession with stories of his sexual conquest. You know, he would tell about his, you know, uh, his bullshit sex capades. And how Chuck and Dennis went shopping for weapons in the Philippines. And so he sold, I think, 16 machine guns 
to these guys, took their government money and just disappeared. They was never heard from again. Chameleon Season 2 comes from Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Trevor Aronson. Our executive producers are Vanessa Grigoriadis and Adam Hoff. Alex Yablon fact-checked the series. Marco Williams also contributed to research. Mark McAdam composed the theme song. Doug Slaywin and Sam Leeds provided production support. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Grigoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed High Rollers, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other listeners like you find the show. And make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take me in Sin City. Take me in Sin City. When you're in Sin City, no use confessing your sins.